The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. For the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, the weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. Then he defines what a stronghold is in verse 5. For we demolish the arguments and the pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Last week we learned this term stronghold Paul uses to define and describe those thoughts, those pretenses, those ideas that have made their way into our hearts over the years and we have allowed those ideas to to build a stronghold in our heart, to build a place to where they influence our thought patterns, they influence our prejudices, our predispositions, they influence our worldview. These strongholds have a place that they have shaped and allowed us to see the world differently than what the Word of God might. Because Paul defines a stronghold as a thought or a pretext that goes against Scripture, goes against biblical understanding. And last week we learned that the only way that you can deal with a stronghold, according to Nehemiah 13, is to confront it. It doesn't go away on its own. It doesn't go away by you rationalizing it out. It doesn't go away by making excuses. The only way that a stronghold can begin to be torn down is by you admitting that it's a problem. And the only way it can be confronted, Paul says, is through the Word of God. The Holy Spirit revealing truth. Because truth is the only thing that can eliminate error. And what happens to these strongholds is many times we don't even realize they have become a part of our life. They are a part of our subconscious and we have excused them and we have rationalized them for so long that we don't even recognize them until the truth of the Word of God comes up against it. And last week I identified four strongholds that I believe are a reality in the American church. Strongholds that each of us probably struggle with. And not only do we struggle with it as individuals, but they have been institutionalized in the church. For so long we have accepted it, and for so long we have rationalized it out, that they have become an underlying foundation for which we try to do things. And because these thoughts, because these ideas, because these worldviews are not scripturally based, they always will hold us back. I shared with you last week that like Nehemiah's dream to build the wall, you and I, for us to see where God is calling us to go as a church, where we are, this idea of this is us and who we are and where we are going, before I can begin to cast a vision, there are strongholds that have become walls and barriers to the church that have to be torn down. These barriers have to be destroyed before we can ever see where God wants us to go. And I named four of them last week, and I believe they are strongholds for many of us. And I heard from some of you afterwards that while you may not have thought it was a stronghold, that you realized through the truth of the Word of God that it had taken root. I talked about denominationalism. I talked about racism. I talked about sexism and the patriarchy that we've developed in the church. I talked about ageism. The idea that one generation is better than the other, or one generation does it right and the other does it wrong. And all four of those characteristics, denominationalism and and the gender and racism and ageism, all of those things were given to the church as a source of strength. 
That is, that is how we are strong because of our diversity, because we are all ages, five generations worshiping in one place, because we are different sexes, because we all are different races, because we all come from different theological backgrounds. That should be a strength. That should be something that we should be able to, to build on. But instead, the enemy has taken it and used it as a stronghold to divide the church. And all over this country, churches are closing and dying and becoming neutered in their message because they've allowed one of those strongholds to take root and destroy it. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there are more than just those four strongholds because I believe that there is a stronger stronghold that has taken root in the church. And until we admit it, until we recognize it, we will never be able to move into the next generation. This stronghold I've identified before, and I've called it by name, and the easiest way to identify it would be to say that it's cultural Christianity. And the idea of cultural Christianity, I think to define it even further down, I would call it Americanized cultural Christianity. It's this idea that we are cultural Christians, much like a cultural Jewish person. In in the Jewish faith, there are many that are born into a Jewish family. They are ethnically Jewish, but they don't believe in the Jewish faith. They don't go to the synagogues. They don't practice their Judaism, but yet they consider themselves Jewish. And in the church, and especially in the South, we have a whole generation of people that have grown up in a Christian environment, in a Christian community, and Christian parents, and they may have even gone to church, and they've been around Christians all their life, and so they self-define themselves as Christians. Even though they've never given their life to Jesus Christ, they've never made a decision to where they submitted themselves to Christ. They may have walked an aisle, they may have prayed a prayer, they may have had a religious experience, but there has been no change in their life. And what that has led to is to churches full of people and communities full of people calling themselves Christian, which is not what the Bible calls a Christian. Let me give you a little more proof. In 2017, Pew Research came out with the most comprehensive survey done of the religious environment in America. It's the most comprehensive survey done in over 20 years. In that Pew Research, 72% of people in America self-identify as Christian. 72%, 7 out of every 10 Americans said that they have given their life to Jesus Christ. Now, you may think that's great. Ten years ago, it was 78%, so even that has fallen some. But of that 78%, only 22%, two out of ten that claims to be a Christian, says that the Bible is God's Word and their source of authority. So only two out of ten that claim to be Christians say that the Bible is their source of authority. And even scarier... When you look at that group that claims to be Christian, the 72% of Americans, 65% of that group says that there are other ways besides Jesus Christ that you can become a believer. There are other ways that you can have eternal life. There are other ways that you can get to heaven. 65% of those who claim to be Christian. Now, if you wanted to tap that down and say, what about evangelical Christians? That's who we are. We believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way. We are evangelical Of those that claim to be evangelical Christians, 56% said that there are other ways that might lead to heaven. That you don't have to have Jesus alone. 
Matter of fact, in the survey, when it was broken down, of that group that said they were Christian, that 72%, 35% said Islam can lead to eternal life. 33% said Hinduism can lead to eternal life. 22% said you can be an atheist if you're sincere enough and lead to a relationship to God. So 45% of those who claim to be Christian in the United States of America say that Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the only hope. He's the only thing that can lead you to a relationship to God. A little more than four out of ten of those in church this morning gathered around America singing songs like what we sang. Only four out of every ten say that Jesus Christ is our hope. That's a problem. That's a stronghold. That's something that is corrupting America. It's something that's corrupting the church. It's something that is neutering our message. We have Americanized Christianity. We have married it with the American dream. And I would venture to guess that if you ask most of that 72% who claims to be Christian, what does it look like to be a Christ follower? Much of what they would describe looks like what it means to be a successful American. To have a nice family nice place to live, be successful in my business. I remember as a student pastor, I would ask parents, I would say, define what you expect when you say that you're raising a Christian teenager. What, what is your expectation level? And they would say, well, I, I want them to be good kids, make good grades, do good in school, be successful, have a good job, have a career, be popular. And all of those things are good, but you can be an atheist and have all of those things. Those don't have anything to do with being a good Christian. What about raising my kid to be a, a Christian in the school that goes in and loves those that everyone else unloves, those that everyone else makes fun of? What about going and creating an environment where people can be accepted for who they are? What about going in and overturning the cultural cliques in your school by loving and sharing and caring? That's what Jesus was about. But you see, in America, we've married it. The American dream and Christianity go hand in hand. And it's even worse in the South. We have developed a stronghold of cultural Christianity. Listen, church, Christianity is not something you put on like an accessory. It's not something you try out. It's not something you add to your life like a hobby. Christianity is your life. Jesus was never ambiguous about what it meant to be a follower of His. He never was confusing. You can't find it in the New Testament anywhere where Jesus defined down what it meant to follow Him, what it meant to be a disciple. Now people say, well, I want to be a Christian. I just don't want to be a disciple. There's no difference. There's no separation between this idea of I just want to be saved, I don't want anything else. The two go hand in hand. You either take all of Christ or none of Christ. You either say yes and give Him every part of your life, or you don't give Him any part of your life. And it's time for us to stop playing games and begin to get back to the truth of the Word of God and hope that people understand that this is what sets people free. This is what brings salvation. Jesus gives three parables and the last main teaching 
of his ministry. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And Matthew has it in Matthew 24 and 25. But in Matthew 25, he, he gives three parables. And I know you've heard people teach on these three parables because each one of them is, is very important and has a great lesson. But I want to combine the three parables because I believe all three of those parables have one central theme. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 25, and and I'm going to read some, but I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, A parable was Jesus' way of teaching, a a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It was an earthly metaphor with heavenly consequences. Jesus is talking about the end times in the Olivet Discourse. He's talking about when he returns again. He's talking about judgment. And so in these three parables, we have three different groups. In the the first one, verse 1 through 13, he talks about these ten virgins, or or your Bible may say grooms, bridesmaids, or or bridegrooms. Because in the Jewish faith, when you had a wedding, it was a celebration. It was a couple of weeks. And as they celebrated in the Jewish tradition, what they would do is when the groom would come into the town where the bride was from, they would line the streets and celebrate. It would be a party. And they would have candles in case he came at night. And Jesus tells this parable in chapter 25, verse 1 through 13, of these ten bridesmaids. Their responsibility was to have the lamps ready so that when the groom shows up, they can light the way for him to see to the wedding. And Jesus says there were five bridesmaids, these five virgins, that they prepared and they put oil in their lamps and they were ready and they were anticipating. But there were five others They were more worried about what was going on in the moment. They were more focused on their own needs. They were more focused on doing their thing. They didn't put any oil in their lamp. And all of a sudden, the horn blew, and it said the groom was showing up. And the five who had prepared, the five who had been obedient and held to their responsibility, held up their lamps. And the five that hadn't came to them and said, Listen, can we get some of your oil? They said, No, we don't have any to spare. They said, go and find somebody that sells oil. And so they ran to find somebody that sells oil. And in the interim, the groom had already shown up and he'd already been made his way to the wedding. And it says they shut the doors and the five that weren't ready, the five that had other things to do, were left out. It's a lesson for us to understand that we can either choose comfort and selfishness or we can choose obedience. It's a very direct understanding of someone who's called to follow Jesus. And in case his disciples didn't get it, he said, let me tell you another story. There was a story of a master, and he goes into verse 14 through 30, and he tells what we call the parable of the talents. Now, talent is money. He says, let me tell you another story. Maybe you didn't understand the one about the, the, the virgins, the bridesmaids that didn't have oil in their lamps. Let me tell you this story. There was a master who was about to leave and he called three of his most trusted servants in. And he said, I'm going to be gone for a while and I'm going to give you some money and I want you to take that money and invest it and do the best that you can with it. And to one he gave five, to one he gave two, and to one he gave one. It says he gave each according to his own ability, to what he thought they could do with it. Says the master left. And then he came back. He called his servants together after a time and said to the one who had five, What did you do with it? The servant said, I invested it and I made five. He said, You're blessed. He went to the one who had two and, and, and he said, Here, what did you do with it? He said, I invested it. I, I poured out what you gave me and, and I doubled it. And he said, Blessed are you. And then he went to the one who had one. He said, What did you do with it? And he said, Well, I knew that you're pretty 
you know, scrimpy with your money and I knew that you think it's important and, and I didn't want you to be mad at me, so I buried it and, and I've only got the one. Jesus, it says, and this is troubling to me, Jesus looked at that man who only had one and he said, you're wicked. And I thought, why is he wicked? He didn't steal the money. He didn't gamble the money. He didn't, he didn't go blow the money. He didn't take the money. He, he, all he did was he buried it. He didn't use it the way the master wanted. But yet that was enough for him to be called wicked. And the master said, take the one away from the one who wasted it and give it to the one who invested it. It said, and then cast him out of the household. See, it's a lesson for us to understand that we have a responsibility to be obedient to what God is calling us to, a responsibility to use those things that God has given us, our time, our talent, and our treasure for His glory. He didn't give you those gifts so that you could be, your, uh, your name could be exalted, so you could be something, so you could build your own little kingdom. He gave you what you've got for His glory, for His kingdom. Jesus said, wicked. You know, when the Bible talks about wicked, there's usually it's about sin. We call sin wicked. But this parable teaches us that there's another wicked. There is a wicked of us not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We call it in theology the sin of omission. It's when God says, this is what I want you to do, and you don't do it. He calls him wicked. And then just in case his disciples didn't get it, just in case they didn't understand, this is what I'm asking for those who want to follow me, that you be ready because you don't know when I'm going to return and I'm entrusting you to, to follow through and, and to overcome your own needs and your own comfort, to be ready because when I come, I'm coming like a lightning clap. And he's telling us like the parable of the talent, I'm giving you something. Each one of you in this room has been given incredible gifts, incredible talents. He said, I'm giving you those things to be used to glorify my name and to extend my kingdom. Because one day you are going to be held to account for what I have given you. I told you before that I used to be confused. That I thought when I stood before God someday, the Bible says we'll all stand for God and give an account. I used to think it was a sin. Like God was going to play my you know, B-roll of everything that I did wrong in my life and everybody was going to watch it and God was going to say, here's, here's your life for us to use. That's not true. Because the Bible says God forgets our sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't even know the sins that I committed yesterday as I've asked Him to forgive me. The Bible says at the cross, He forgave all my sins I ever forget, all the sins I'll ever do. So it's not my sins. You know what I'm going to see? We're going to stand and he's going to say, this is who I saved you to be, Rusty. This is, this is what you could have done for the kingdom. These are all the people you could have made a difference in their life. This is all, that one little talent that I gave you, do you understand what you could have done with it? And I'm going to stand there and look at who I am compared to who he saved me to be. And the Bible says that there will be brokenhearted and weeping in heaven. So just in case they didn't get it with the parable of the virgins and the parable of the talents, he was more direct at the end of chapter 25 in what we call the parable of the sheep and the goats. He said, on that day, many will stand before the king 
And he will judge them according to their works. And you can read there how he judged them. It said he would judge them according to how they served and gave of themselves. And it says he will move to the left those who were were gave of themselves, those who served. And to the right, he called them goats. Those who were selfish. Those who put themselves first. Those who were too busy. Those who were too lazy. And he says, you didn't, you didn't do it. And they said, God, when, when did we not do it? And that's that powerful verse, when you've done it into the least of these. When you haven't done it into the least of these, you've done it unto me. And the thing that stands out is the goats thought they were sheep. They thought they were, they'd been serving all along, but in reality, when opportunities came, they didn't. They were too busy. They were too overwhelmed. They had too much focused on their own self that they missed the opportunities that God brought into their life. And you see, of those three parables, the one thing that jumps out that I couldn't get away from, that I couldn't escape, is that there is no middle ground. There's no in-between. There's no maybe and if and kind of. It is either you serve and give and submit yourself totally to the king or you don't. And you see, somehow in our Americanized Christianity, we have created a middle ground. And we have said if you give to the church, maybe you're there. If you go to church a couple of times, maybe if you do some good things, maybe you're there. If you have a good desire or good intentions or a good, maybe you're there. Jesus says, no, you're not. Either you have submitted everything you have to God and said, God, take it all. It's a blank check. My time, my talent, my treasure. Use it however you want. I will be obedient to you or you haven't. There's no middle ground. And what we need to understand from this parable is that we don't get to decide and define what it means to be a Christian. Because we didn't create the covenant. I know you can go to church and they want to say this is what it means to be a Christian. The only thing that decides that is the one who sent the one for salvation. And the Bible is very clear that Jesus said the only way to salvation is through Him. Let me ask you, church, are we choosing comfort and selfishness over service and obedience? Have we allowed the American dream to blur and cloud what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? The angel of the Lord in the book of Revelation speaks a language very clear in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. The angel of the Lord looks at the church and says, I I see your heart. I see what you're like. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. Because of that, you're no good for the kingdom. I spew you out of my mouth. And we don't like to talk about that because it makes people uncomfortable. But I'd much rather you be uncomfortable for 15 minutes here than uncomfortable for eternity because you thought you were ready and you weren't. Francis Chan in his book Crazy Love 
talks about what lukewarm Christianity is, and he gives some identifiers. And as I was reading through that, I, I thought about some identifiers for cultural Christianity, some things that we could say, this is what it looks like, this cultural Christianity that we've created in America. And so I'm just going to give you seven identifiers, and I'm not going to elaborate on them because they elaborate on themselves, but I just want you to see what I am trying to say when I talk about this cultural Americanized Christianity. So it helps us to define it. So they're real easy. First one, cultural Christians don't want to really be saved from their sin. They want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. See, cultural Christianity doesn't see sin as being an abomination to a holy God. It sees it as a barrier to us getting to heaven. Kind of the difference between feeling bad because you got caught and feeling bad because you did something wrong. Right? You know that difference. If you're a parent, you know that difference. Right? Your kids. The idea of feeling bad, you don't feel bad because you did it. You feel bad because I caught you doing it. And cultural Christianity wants to be saved from the penalty of sin. They just don't want to give sin up. They don't want to worship a holy God. They want to worship a God that forgives. It's it's hell insurance. It's a fire escape. It's what we want. Cultural Christianity and cultural Christians are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they don't do radical things themselves. Because you see, we have defined down what the Bible calls normal, we call radical. What Jesus expects out of all Christ followers, we now call religious fanatics. We call it radical, man. It's crazy. We were talking about Frank yesterday. Frank spent 25 years in, in the business world. All of his buddies were retiring. I wonder how many people said, Frank, you're stupid. You can go live on a beach somewhere. You're, you could retire early. You've got a good retirement. Why in the world would you move away from your friends and your family up into the mountains where you don't know anybody to go to work for an organization where you're trying to figure out how you can deliver shoeboxes into the darkest areas of the world? That sounds radical, doesn't it? Who gives up their retirement to go back to work? I wonder how many times and things didn't go right. He was, and I know Frank, he would have never quit. That's why God took him the way he took him. Because it didn't matter how things go. Because Frank said, God gave me a talent and a gift. And until he calls me home, I'm going to use it for his glory. And you and I sit here and I, and I heard the stories yesterday and I thought probably 70% of the people in this audience are thinking, that's radical. No, that's Christian. That's what Jesus said those who love him are willing to do. There is no retirement in the kingdom. There is no time out. There is no me time. You gave up me time when you said your time. Cultural Christians call radical what Jesus calls normal. Cultural Christians equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness. You see, we define ourselves as good Christians by the sins we don't commit. Jesus never called us to be sanitized. He called us to discipleship. Holiness isn't about how many sins you don't commit. Holiness is about how much like Jesus you are in everything that you do. Jesus called us to discipleship. We want to pat ourselves on the back because I don't do that sin and I don't do that sin and I don't do that sin. How much like Jesus are you? 
cultural Christians rarely share their faith with their neighbors or their coworkers or friends. And I think the reason we rarely share our faith is because we assume everybody already knows. Because we're in the South. And we got a hundred churches within a 50-mile radius. So surely everybody knows. Oh, they may know about Jesus. They may have heard the stories. But as I read to you from that statistics, we are working with and our neighbors and our everyday friends have never met a Jesus that transforms lives, a Jesus that saves, the Jesus that takes something that is worthless and redeems it into something that is incredibly valuable. They've never met Him. Yet cultural Christians, we, we might invite them to church, but we rarely share about Jesus. When's the last time you shared about Jesus? Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor, said, you're either a missionary for Christ or you're an imposter. Cultural Christians think about and focus more on life on earth than eternity in heaven. See, we, we spend most of our time building our kingdoms here on earth instead of investing in things in heaven. And I'm not going to go back and re-preach Matthew 7 where Jesus says, invest in those things that are going to last forever. There's only two things that are going to last forever. And I'll just give you a little secret here. The Bible says the grass withers and a flower fades, but the Word of God will stand forever. This will last forever. And the only other thing that will last forever is the souls of man. Everything else in this world is going to crumble and be gone. All of that stuff that you invested your worry and your time, the Bible says it's going to turn to hay, wood, and stubble. The only things that are going to last is your neighbor's soul, your brother and sister, your friends, your children in this book. How much have you invested your time, talent, and treasure in things of eternity? How much much do we worry and pray and focus on those things that will last forever? Cultural Christians rarely live by faith because our lives are so structured we don't have room for it. We all have a plan, don't we? Five-year plan, ten-year plan, two-year plan where I see myself, we, we plan everything out. And, and so we, we move, we're always moving according to our schedule. That leaves no room for faith. David Platt, who's the head of the International Mission Board, said, if you're not crying out for God to show up, then you're not on the front lines of the kingdom fight. Because when you're on the front lines, you're going to find yourself many times, like I use the illustration, with your back up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army marching on you, and you're going to need God. When's the last time you found yourself out on a leap of faith, and the only way you were going to be saved is if God showed up? See, most of us don't get there because our lives are planned and structured. And so we don't hear when God whispers in our ear, stop and listen to that person. I can't, God. I've got to be somewhere. When God says, go this way, and there's somebody I want you to encounter, and you hear it in your heart, and you hear it in your voice, you say, God, I can't. My schedule says I'm not free. We walk by sight. The last one, cultural Christians tend to give God their leftovers, not their first and their best. And Francis Chan says this. Hit me right in the heart. He says, it's time we stop calling our complacency and our apathy a busy schedule or forgetfulness. 
and call it what it is, wickedness. That's what Jesus said to the man he gave one talent to. He called him wicked. See, we call it busy. I forgot. I was too busy. I've learned whatever it is that is a priority in our life, we can find the time to do it and we can find the resources to do it. I have people tell me, Pastor, I just don't have the money because we just spent $2,000 going to travel ball over the weekend. Pastor, I don't have the time because, because we've got all of these other extracurricular activities that really aren't going to matter in my children's lives for eternity, but I don't have the time to do some of these other things. I am too busy. God sees your heart. See, cultural Christianity has told us that excuses and rationalizations are okay. Now, let me just be honest. I'm almost done. Every one of us in this room has struggled with lukewarmness. We have all fallen into one of these traps that I just mentioned. Every one of us, me included, probably top of the list. Because it's a battle of the flesh. We've all tried to do what God's called us to do. We've all tried to to give it our all. We've all tried to invest and and commit and serve. and, And we've hit moments in our life when it just gets hard and we quit. That's the reality. But you can't live there. You can't settle there. You can't get comfortable there. Because the more comfortable you get, the greater stronghold it becomes. And the only thing, once it becomes a stronghold in your life, that can tear it down is the truth of the Word of God. We have got to understand that Jesus is calling us to more. And as churches, we have got to stop worrying about how we're going to get people in the pews and what happens if people get upset and get turned off and watering down the gospel for the sake of relevance. And we've got to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Let me just tell you this, and I've been in ministry 30 years, and I've heard all the different tricks and and all the programs that everybody is trying now. The same thing that worked 2,000 years ago works today. Somebody that's drowning doesn't care if you throw them a fancy life vest or if it's a new life vest or the color of the life vest. All they want to know is that it's going to save them. All they want to know is that it's going to help them. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And He saves and He rescues the perishing. We've got to get back to showing the world the Jesus of the Bible instead of the Jesus of our culture. We've got to get back to preaching the truth of the Word of God and standing on His promises. We're either surrendering everything to Jesus Christ and committed and being engaged to His kingdom... Or we're just having a religious experience. And I'll tell you, a religious experience feels good for a few minutes. Kind of gets you pumped up, goosebumps. But a religious experience never saved anybody. Only submitting and giving yourself all to Jesus Christ. Have you done that? Don't buy into the lie that Jesus accepts anything less. And I want to close with something. 
I said there were two strongholds. Really one, but it manifests itself in a second way. And this is something that is a hard truth. Something that's difficult. Because we have developed a Americanized cultural Christianity, there is beginning to take root in America a strong Christian nationalism. Now what does that mean? That means that I am beginning to hear out of Christians and churches that the only hope for our nation is a politician or a political party or a law or a rule. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous when we begin to see ourselves more as Americans than we do Christians and evangelical and Bible-believing and Baptist. Remember those terms I said define us? And that's not patriotism. See, nationalism is not patriotism. Patriotism says I can love my country, and there's no one probably in here more patriotic as a history student than I. I love the country that I'm blessed to live in. I love those who gave their life to secure the freedoms that we celebrate in this place. I love that we can have security and safety and that we have a constitution that is based on laws and those laws protect us and allow us the freedom to speak and worship. I get emotional thinking about how much I love our country. But the moment we begin to put our hope in our country over our Christ, it's dangerous ground. And when we start adding religious language and religious lingo to Christian jingoism and nationalism, it becomes scary because, you see, nationalism is is us first, everybody else who cares. And hear my heart. Christianity is not an American religion. John 3.16 says, For God so loved America... For God so loved the world. And my allegiance, well, I love my country. The Bible says I, I, I'm just passing through. I'm an alien. Matter of fact, Paul says I'm an ambassador. It means I speak for somebody else. I'm visiting here. Just visiting. My allegiance is to Christ and His church. And the Christian church is much bigger than America. And when I begin to say, I'm all for us prospering at the expense of everybody else, it is ignoring that everybody else includes my brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Now, if you don't like that, send me an email. But it's dangerous. And I'm not saying we're there yet, but I'm seeing rising up in Christians the way they communicate, the way they are talking. What a lost world is hearing from them is is our hope is not in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It's in this political party and it's in this law. It's in hoping that this happens. The only hope for our future, the only hope for our nation is Jesus Christ as revealed in the Word of God. And we've got to get back to it, church. We can't be distracted. We live in a world, I told you last week, that wants to divide us in every way. 
wants to separate us by race, by gender, by economic background, by where we live, by the states that we're from. And now it is rising up bigger and it wants to divide the church according to nationality. But we have to recognize that we have the blood of Jesus Christ just like my brothers and sisters in South America and Europe and Asia. Don't get sucked in. We are blessed to be Americans. But we live in a dangerous time. And there needs to be a clarity of truth and hope that comes from the church about who our hope is in and where our hope is found. A truth that reveals mercy and love and forgiveness that changes people from the inside out. Jesus warned with this in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life must lose his life. But whoever loses his life for me will really find it. For what good would it be for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Let's pray.